studying through the book of Acts on Sunday morning, and we come rather to chapter 9 and the latter portion of the book. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and uh, you wave to them and they will spot you and they will put a Bible in your hand, and if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and Take your bed, which was a mat he was lying on out in the open. And then he arose immediately. And so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon uh, saw him and turned to the Lord. And at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples and the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And then Peter arose, and he went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, and he knelt down and prayed. Beautiful scene. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. You ever open your eyes after a surgery? Something like that, maybe. And she opened up her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. And so it was that Peter stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. It seems a little odd in some respects to us that it sits where it does in the book. But we know that there is bound up in this passage an important lesson for our walk with you and our Christian life and ministry. And Lord, you know that we only have one shot at this, this side of heaven, and we want to give it our best shot, not in the strength of our flesh or some motivation of guilt or condemnation, but just because we know we've been given a great opportunity by you. And we pray for the lesson that is found in Aeneas and also in Dorcas, that you would take it off of the printed page and build it into our relationship with you. And then, Lord, bring that lesson to our remembrance all the remaining days of our pilgrimage, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In Dr. Luke's account of the early church, Paul is now saved and he has been safely transported back to his hometown of Tarsus in modern-day Turkey, where he will remain for a number of years until certain circumstances arise in the early church where Barnabas realizes that Paul is an exact match for the need of the church at that point in church history. And with this, these events of Paul making his way to Tarsus, it brought, as we're told in verse 31, a long season of peace and quiet and edification and comfort to the churches in Judea and Galilee and Samaria. The apostles hadn't really wandered out of Jerusalem much up to this point, and with things being in this kind of a condition, the apostle Peter then begins to kind of stretch his wings a little bit, and he moves out from the city of Jerusalem. We know he had gone into Samaria earlier under the revival with Peter, but now 
he, he heads out, not sent by all of the rest of the apostles necessarily, but he took advantage of this period of relative quiet to leave Jerusalem and then travel throughout the region in what was probably just kind of a visitation and preaching tour. And the Holy Spirit tells us two stories behind his visit to two cities, first the city of Lydda and then the city of Joppa. In the city of Lydda, uh, as the apostle Peter goes there, that city of Lydda was known in Old Testament times as the city of Lod. If you've ever traveled to Israel in order to do a tour of Israel, you have most likely landed in, at Ben-Gurion International Airport. And that international airport is located uh, very, very near, virtually on top of the ancient city of Lod, Lydda, the very place that we're talking about here in the passage, about 25 miles northwest of uh, Jerusalem. Notice there in verse 32 that there were already saints in Lydda when Peter comes there. We know from Acts chapter 8 that when Philip the evangelist went uh, out onto that road to Gaza, the deserted places the Holy Spirit directed him from the great revival that was occurring in Samaria, that he preached to an Ethiopian eunuch and uh, then baptized the Ethiopian eunuch after his faith in Christ. And then the Holy Spirit took him to Azotus which is near Lydda, and then we're told that he then made his way up the, Mediterranean, the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea in Israel all the way up to Caesarea, preaching the gospel to all of those cities. Well, Lydda, Joppa, all of these cities that we're looking at here this morning, they would have all been on Philip's preaching tour. And so apparently many people came to know the Lord in both of those cities. We're told there in verse 33 that in Lydda there was a man living by the name of Aeneas, and the passage doesn't really overtly declare him to be a Jew or to be a Gentile. It doesn't even tell us whether he's a Christian or not. But it's generally believed that he was a Jew because it seems unlikely that Luke, who writes the book of Acts, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would have put an event of Peter dealing so dramatically with the Gentiles prior to the most dramatic Gentile event in the book of Acts, which is coming in the very next chapter, in chapter 10, having to do with Cornelius and his house. So he's probably uh, a Jew and uh, also believed to be a Christian because following his healing, there's nothing said about his then putting his faith in Christ as a result uh, of that as, as we would expect in the account. He's been paralyzed and he's been bedridden for eight long years. Now you stop and you think about that. That's the portion of some people in life but it isn't the portion for the majority of people in life. And it's good when we come to a passage like this to just stop and think about where he is, even as a Christian, even having faith in God and hope in God and the comfort and the presence uh, of God. There's a lot encapsulated in those words, bedridden eight years. Eight years is a long time to be in one position uh, for anyone And it's a very, very long time to be in the position of being bedridden. And so that's his physical condition. But you think about the assault that that kind of a physical position must have had upon him emotionally and mentally. No matter how victorious he might have been in his relationship with God and so forth, uh, we are a triunity of body, spirit, and soul. And so we are affected by what we are. We're affected emotionally, mentally, uh, by what we are physically. Peter heals him, you notice in verse 34, in the name of Jesus the Christ. And so what we have here, Peter didn't just do this to everyone. Again, we see the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation. Obviously, what the Lord has done 
is the Holy Spirit has given Peter a word of wisdom that he wants to heal this man, and then he has given him a, a, a word of a gift of faith in his life to then go to him, say what he's going to say to him. Because there's no evidence here that Aeneas requests healing of Peter, that he even knows who Peter is, that he expects healing at all. This is the Holy Spirit working through Peter way before the miracle occurs. The gift in Aeneas' life, as he's healed here, he receives two spiritual gifts himself, the gift of miracles and the gifts, uh, gift of healing in his life. All of it was a demonstration of God's power and of the fact that Jesus was and is alive. And so when he says he healed him in the name of Jesus the Christ, the miracle is intended to be a sermon that communicates the fact that Jesus is the Christ and that he is alive and he is present and he is performing this miracle. So it was a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Peter then further told him to, you know, get up and uh, take up his mat or his bed that he was lying on, and it would have just been a flat mat. Just pick up your uh, gear and get on out of here. This is going to head out into something else. It reminds me of my uh, uh, eighth-grade homeroom teacher, Mr. Deming, only we always heard it in uh, a more negative tone. Uh, if somebody sassed him or he uh, got impatient with somebody, always because of the student, he would say, Mr. So-and-so, pack up your gear and get out. And, uh, and in those days, they packed up their gear and they got out, maybe to return. So here in a kind of a sweeter tone is Peter saying, listen, uh, this isn't for you anymore. Roll up that mat, and you go ahead and clear on out. And Aeneas promptly did so. Now, of course, word of that miracle spread very quickly, and uh, people came to see Aeneas in order to witness the miracle for themselves. And so many people were told in verse 35, turn to the Lord as a result. Now, it's important that we realize uh, in trying to understand this section of the book of Acts that Peter probably didn't just come into Lydda and then heal Aeneas, and then depart immediately. Um, he probably came in, began to preach the gospel as well. Healing is going on here. He is teaching the Word of God as well. He is discipling the flock that he has found there as an apostle. You remember when Jesus recommissioned Peter after his three denials. Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know all things, Lord. You know that I love you. Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, of course I love you. And then feed my sheep. And so here is Peter fulfilling the commission that Jesus had given to him in the city of Lydda. And then notice as we come into his ministry in Joppa. Now, Joppa is a beautiful ancient seaport located about 13 miles north of Lydda. It is right on the Mediterranean coast. Famously, this is the city that Jonah tried, uh, got in a boat in and then tried to escape the will of God out in the Medi Mediterranean Sea. Listen, if you're going to try and escape the will of God, uh, do it on land at least. Don't get in a little boat and out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea unless you really like oceans and drowning and big fish and stuff like that. So in a moment of insanity, something that would not have overtaken me, I only get in oceans when I'm forced to and only three feet into them uh, and because and, uh, there's a whole shark thing too you've got to be aware of and stuff like that. Listen, life is complicated for me. So we blow up a little pool in our backyard. And... So he tries to escape God's call to preach in Nineveh, and uh, he attempted to do so by leaving that city. Today the, city's a, the old city is a very beautiful little city. It is a, it's an art colony, 
and um, it is a tourist destination. And we always spend the last day of a tour of Israel. That's one of three sites that we, uh, that we go to, and everybody loves it. Beautiful part of Israel. And here we're introduced here in the city of Joppa to a life that had impacted the entire city. And the name of the woman who had impacted the entire city was a woman by the name of Dorcas, also known as Tabitha. Tabitha was her Aramaic name, and her Aramaic name means gazelle. Uh, Greek, her Greek name is Dorcas. It also means gazelle. The ancient world, when men would write about, poets would write about beautiful women, they would often refer to them as gazelles. Come here, my little gazelle. And because they're a gentle animal, they're a graceful animal, and actually very beautiful uh, animal. And so, uh, named uh, after that, that animal in uh, the Middle East there, and I think that mention of her name here by the Holy Spirit would seem to indicate that she grew into a very gentle and a very gracious woman. We're told in verse 36 that she was a disciple, that is, a follower of Jesus. She probably was a Gentile, given the fact that we're given her Greek name, Dorcas, as well as uh, her Aramaic name. We're told in verse 37 that she became sick and died. That happens to good people, doesn't it? It happens to everybody, barring the rapture sooner or later. And following the custom of the day they, the, concerning the burial of the dead, they took her body up into an upper room of whatever house she was living in, and uh, the body would be, then be washed in preparation for burial. Typically, they would wash the body down with oil and, and then rinse the body with water. And so her body was taken up there, her body was prepared for burial, and then she was laid in that upper room awaiting burial. Now, in those days in Jerusalem, they buried you the, the very day that you died. Outside of Jerusalem, that was still the common practice, but, uh, there were, but typically people would uh, feel free to stretch it out to maybe two or three days before the actual burial would take place. Significantly and very significantly, notice in verse 39 the reaction of the city to her death. And we're ta not talking about the reaction of her immediate family. I mean, when everybody dies, their immediately f immediate family is impact. Here's a woman, uh, anonymous to, you know, in terms of uh, generally kind of speaking, and here an entire city is impacted by her death, and they're overwhelmed with grief. It speaks there in verse 39 of, of uh, everybody weeping. Peter uh, came, when he came into the upper room, all of the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. So they're weeping, and uh, here the word that's used in the original language, it speaks not only of tears coming down from their eyes, that's powerful enough, but it speaks about, it encapsulates every other external expression of grief. They weren't just crying silently, they're sobbing, they're wailing, uh, they're lamenting, and they're doing it openly. And they didn't just do it for a moment or so and, and then kind of get a grip on themselves. Um, here they're still doing it when Peter arrives a day or two after her death. I think that doubtless as the word of her de death spread through the town, it must have hit them like a ton of bricks. I mean, nobody could believe it. Nobody wanted to believe it. And then someone remembered that the Apostle Peter is just 13 miles away in the city of Lydda. And so a delegation was sent in order to fetch him and bring him to Joppa. And uh, so they went to Peter with the message, we're told in verse 38. They implored him to come. The word implored means, I beg you please. They virtually will not take no for an answer. And, uh, and here again is the emotion that her death and, and her life has produced in others. Peter uh, gladly, verse 39, accompanied them back to Joppa. We don't know what they expected uh, of Peter. They had probably heard of the healing of Aeneas in Lydda, 
and that God had used Peter in this way. So they might have expected that Peter would come into Joppa and raise Dorcas from the dead. That might have been their expectation. We don't know. Or it might have been that they just loved Dorcas so much that they wanted to have an apostle present to officiate her uh, her service and to comfort all of the people that were grieving. This was a, a scene of, uh, of, of considerable grief. You notice Peter's actions upon arriving in uh, Joppa there in verses 39 through 41. Verse 39, he entered the upper room uh, where Dorcas's body was lying. The room is filled with widows, and widows were the poorest in that culture. They were the most overlooked in that culture. They were the most vulnerable in that culture. They were the most powerless in that culture. Uh, to be a widow was to be in an awful condition in that day. And he walks into an entire room full of these widows. And they're not just in the room, but they stood weeping, showing Peter uh, the garments that Dorcas had made for them. And in showing them the garments, they weren't pulling suitcases out and saying, well, she made this for me, and she made this for me, and this for me. They're tugging on the very clothes they're wearing. She made this for me. She made this for me, and if she hadn't made it for me, I don't know what I would be wearing between uh, me and nakedness. And you've got a whole room of women who've been supplied with that kind of clothes from Dorcas. Again, a very, very emotional, powerful scene if you picture it in your mind. And all of it was genuine, this mourning that is going on, this grieving at the loss. In the ancient world... When families knew, especially if they had wealth, that nobody's going to really be sad that this guy's died. And uh, they would hire mourners, professional mourners, to come in and mourn, to kind of give a proper, you know, atmosphere to the memorial service. But there's no need to hire any mourners. All of this is genuine. This is the real thing. You stop and you ask yourself and you think about it, how many memorial services have you been to where the death of someone has produced this kind of grief beyond their own immediate family? Well, we realize immediately, this is extraordinary. This, you see, if we just stop and look at it, this is extraordinary. And she is an extraordinary woman. Peter then, in verse 40, puts everyone out of the room, got down on his knees, and he just began to talk with God about all of this. And then, having received heaven's instruction, he turned to the body, and he speaks to her and says, Tabitha, arise. And with that, she opens up her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she then sat up on the side of the bed there. And then Peter, the perfect gentleman, he gave her his hand, and he helped her up to a standing position. And once she's there and presentable and all, he then called the crowd that he had just put out, all of the Christians and all of the widows, and he presented her alive to them. Imagine the emotion of that moment, walking into that room, and there she is. And, of course, news of her resurrection spread throughout the city and many, many people became Christians as a result. Now, we notice in the account that Dorcas lived a life, and the Holy Spirit is very careful to paint it in detail, that Dorcas lived a life that impacted an entire city for the kingdom of God. She did it. She did it. She did what we all dream of concerning our lives. And then we ask ourselves, how did she do it? How did she do it? Are you ready for the answer? She did it with a needle. The power of a needle. She did it because she could sew. She couldn't bring the Messiah into the world. Mary had already done that, but she could sew. She wasn't a prophetess like the daughters of Philip, but she could sew. 
No mention of her ever teaching the Bible or performing miracles, but she could sew. And you notice that the Holy Spirit's description of her in verse 36, where it declares that Tabitha, that she was a woman full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. That's a wonderful translation. Let me read it to you in the New Living Translation. I think it's even more insightful. There was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. That's how she impacted an entire city. By doing kind things to others, she helped the poor, that is, people who could not help themselves in whatever situation they were in, and she did it always. In other words, it was a lifestyle for her. She didn't do it once in a while or at Christmas time and Easter. She did it as a lifestyle. Now, I'm inclined to believe that the Holy Spirit has included this beautiful snapshot of Dorcas in the book of Acts to remind us in the, the midst of this book that is so filled with so many miracles to take and pull us back a little bit. We're all in awe of the miracles. We should be. We want to continue to be. But also to pull us back and to remind us of the tremendous power and influence found in simply doing good as God's people. And to, and to realize the power of that as well. And the Bible speaks to that from one end to the other. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount he said, take heed that when you do your charitable deeds, these are good works, he's talking to us as Christians, that you don't do them to be seen by men, otherwise you have your reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, don't sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. They may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Jesus doesn't say to us as disciples that if we decide uh, to do a charitable deed, or if charitable deeds are a, a, a characteristic uh, of our lives as Christians, but he says, when you do them, it is to mark and to characterize each and every one of us as Christians. He said elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, so let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Paul wrote in the same vein to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, for we are his, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James, of course, has, is a book that James writes, and James is just simply not going to let any Christian live in their head. He is, he is not, he's going to shake us by the Holy Spirit and keep us from thinking that I'm a Christian or gauging my spirituality on the basis of how much I know as opposed to what is translating into obedience in my own life and impacting the world around me for God. And James writes, he says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, the powerless, uh, the, the needy, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. He goes on in that book and he says, and what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? And thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James responds, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I think that very often, especially as the world has become so big and it's become so, um, power has become so concentrated, and it's a sign that the Lord's return is, is drawing closer, 
but we see unbelievable concentration of power, and we see a lot of power in the world today, political, military, lots of power. Entertainment has power. Education has power and all. And very often I think that we can feel powerless to affect change for God or to exert influence for God in our world when we are living a what people would look at and say is a relatively ordinary life. And so we say, how can I impact a city? How can I impact a world when I don't occupy an obviously influential position in life? You have to be powerful in order to exert power. You have to be influential in the ways that the world looks at it in order to influence the world. And the beautiful thing about Dorcas and the incident concerning Dorcas in the passage is that she corrects this kind of thinking within us. Good works done by a Christian will always be influential. Always. God will make sure of it. And they will always glorify our Father who is in heaven for the simple reason that people cannot ignore or forget a good work done for them. They may reject a sermon. They may not willing to give a second thought to anything we say to them, but they will never forget a good deed that is done to them. You think about it from your own life, the power of a good work, especially when someone does something good for you and you're in a place of vulnerability. Here are these widows. I mean, they're in a place of vulnerability. If somebody doesn't make clothes for them, they're in trouble in terms of having clothes on their back. But you can have someone who has a net worth of $25 million and they run into other situations in their life, and they are massively vulnerable now. Hospitals are classic places for this. I marvel every time I walk into a hospital, and I pray for the Christians that are in there. You, I don't care how much money you have or you don't have. You're still going to wear that little blue thing with your backside hanging out, and they don't have like designer gowns related to that. You're vulnerable. You've got a medical diagnosis that's been given. And here, something good that is done. In some other vulnerable place in life, I tell you, it goes a long way. I remember a time when I was on an overseas flight from San Francisco uh, to Europe, and I was alone. And a couple hours into the flight, I... I don't know if I got dehydrated or what, but I started to get a crushing headache. And uh, it is what I assume a migraine headache is like. I've had about four of them in my lifetime. And again, I don't know what triggered it, but here I am. I'm sitting in a plane that is absolutely jammed full. There's not an open seat in coach. And, uh, and here I am, several hours to go, probably nine hours yet to go in the flight. I'm getting nauseous. I don't have any aspirin. I'm just trying to manage. And a flight attendant noticed that I was in a little bit of trouble somehow and, uh, and asked if she could help me in any way. And I, I just asked if there were any aspirins available. And she produced a couple. I won't give her name. She might get fired. But anyway, she produced a couple. I took them, didn't even make a dent, did not make a dent. And then later, a male flight attendant, he checked in on me to see how I was doing. And I told him the, ha- the aspirins just, it really they hadn't done anything. He returned about two minutes later. And he said, come with me. And he moved me up into first class so I could lie flat. And he gave me two super aspirins from the flight attendant stash. I don't know what exactly they were. (laughs) Aspirins with something. And I fell asleep for the remainder of the flight, and my headache had broken. You can say anything you want against flight attendants, and they have an advocate in Damien Kyle. (laughs) I am the biggest fan uh, them, their work, and, and all, and, and I have the utmost respect for them. I had it before, then it just jumped to an entire new level. You see how, you see how the influence or the esteem 
it, it, it reaches out beyond the individual person to all people that are like that people. And I know not every flight attendant I've ever had has been a great flight uh, uh, attendant, but that good deed that that flight attendant did influences to this day how I view all of them. I'll tell you, a good deed done to someone, a moment of extreme need or vulnerability, it's very powerful stuff. It's a funny thing, the name Dorcas. I mean, you'd think that that would be like the name of... um, a computer club or something at a school um, where nerds and techies go to. We used to call them dorks when we were younger. But that, and I have to fight that every time I see Dorcas, and I'm sorry to have planted it in your mind, seriously, genuinely sorry. But that name has been gold in my heart since I was a young boy in elementary school, and I'll tell you why. When I was a kid growing up in Napa, there was a church in town that had what was called the Dorcas Ministry. And it was a clothing ministry, as you might expect. The church had a church grounds proper, and then they owned a house right across the street from uh, the church. And two or three times a year, anyone in need was allowed to come in. There was a maximum. You could only do it two or three times. A person could go into that home at the set hours that they were open, and you could get a maximum of two pairs of jeans or pants, three or four shirts, and if you needed a sweater and a jacket, you could get one of those if you needed it. And you would walk in that front door, and I'll tell you, in the living room, there'd be half a dozen women who would be sewing or they would be sorting clothes that had just come in, and all of the other rooms were just filled with clothes, and one bedroom just completely full of jeans from the bottom of the floor all the way up to virtually the ceiling with this size of jean, and then another and another. I mean, it was just so much clothing, all of them washed, all of them prepared uh, for, you know, another life beyond whoever had owned them to begin with. And then there was another room that was filled with shirts and, and then shoes and jackets and, and, and so forth, and the whole house was crammed with clothing. And there were times in my childhood, early childhood, before I could work, where we would go there to get our clothes for school. And I'll tell you, that practical expression of the love of that church and those women toward not only me and my twin brother who received the clothing, but also toward my mom who was trying to take care of us at that point in time uh, in, in life, I'll tell you, it had a very, very far-reaching effect in each of us. And I have a tremendous soft spot in my heart to this day for that church and for those women. And I'm sure that all of us could tell similar stories from each of our lives. Maybe somebody, there you are as a teenager, and you're in a group of four friends, and all of them have money for a hamburger, and you don't have money for a hamburger. And then somebody steps up and buys you, a friend buys you a hamburger. Or whatever kind of thing, it might be big or small, the things that we remember. Don't underestimate the power of a kind deed done to a person in a time of need. It will never, ever be forgotten. I think that we all recognize, and somehow we're we're kind of just um, mesmerized by it. We all see a bad action. We all see a bad deed. And when that's done, we see the repercussions of it, the reverberations of it. And like that stone that goes thrown into the pond, and we see the ripples as it moves out and has such an effect then in all kinds of different directions. And we're so in tune with how far-reaching an evil deed or wrongdoing is, but sometimes we can tend to forget that the same thing is just as true of good deeds. And when Rorcus died, she had no idea the scope of her influence for good or for God upon other people. After all, she's dead and she's in heaven and nobody gets to attend their own funeral. She has no idea the influence that she's had within that community 
and, and, uh, but it was there at that service for everyone else to see. It always reminds me of that uh, show that is on Wonderful Life each Christmas time. It plays several times in the Christmas season. This scene of Dorcas here always reminds me. It's kind of a Christian version of, uh, of that uh, that particular movie. Probably most of us have seen it there. George Bailey, who considers his life to be a failure because he wasn't successful by the world's standards or by his own standards, and, and he not only believes that he hasn't made any kind of a difference because he's just living this ordinary life, just trying to treat people right, and he actually gets so down that he, he contemplates taking his life and uh, it just looked like it hadn't made any kind of a difference at all until in the movie an angel, uh, he is shown by an angel how different Bedford Falls would have been if he'd never been born and were it not for his life of good works. And I'll tell you, I like it, and I like the fact that they still run that movie, even as old as it is at Christmas time, because it's an important message that we all need to be constantly reminded of. And Dorcas delivers it to us from the pages of Scripture concerning the health and the welfare of the kingdom of God. You remove Dorcas, and Joppa would have been a very different city in that day. Now, I have to admit, and I close now, I have to admit that I'm a little bummed that there is no record in the book of Acts of God raising a pastor, uh, or a preacher, or a minister. And we think to ourselves, why her and why not others? And I am convinced that it's because there are never enough of those kind of people. So God raises them and raised her from the dead. Maybe preachers are a dime a dozen. I don't think so. But I do think that Dorcas's, it may be, it may be, the Dorcases are so rare and valuable that God looked and said, I can't afford to lose her because she certainly wasn't coming back from the dead for her sake, but for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Understanding the power of doing good is important. And the great theologian and preacher John Wesley who was a part of the Great Awakening in the United States of America, probably one of the two greatest moves of the Holy Spirit in the history of the New World, the United States of America. He was a part of that. And then I think Methodism would come out of his life. But here was a guy that you couldn't get to esteem the Word of God and the gospel more highly than he did. I forget how many sermons he preached in his lifetimes. It was tens of thousands in his lifetime. And yet, he also recognized the importance of good works. And he wrote famously, Do all the good you can, by any means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. <laughs> And it's true. And I think it's important for us this morning, it's just the quietness of the Holy Spirit, just the way that, that He works, to just examine our lives right now, right where we sit, in the privacy of our own heart, to see if we are living a life full of doing kind things for others and helping those in need. Just to ask myself, when is the last time I did something for someone beyond my family that represented a sacrifice that was an inconvenience for me that could never be repaid back to me. When was the last time I noticed a person in a very, very vulnerable, powerless place in the situation that they're in and then engaged in that situation in a way to help them through some kind of good work or some kind of effort. I think that sometimes in our culture we immediately think, okay, when I go to Costco, I'm going to give five bucks to the first guy that's got a sign out there. I'm not talking about that. I don't know how much that helps. 
the person. But opening our eyes up in the daily of life, and it may not be material, and it may not be monetary, it may be emotional, it may be a need for somebody to be called every other day for two weeks to make sure that they get through this okay. It's a lot of different ways. And a lot of times it can involve money or resources or something breaks on for somebody, you find out about it, it's a little situation, you realize, man, they are never going to be able to put that thing back together. But Lord, do you want me to maybe be involved in that? But it's all around us. It's all around us. And the need in those moments of vulnerability and need, a lot of times people don't wear that on their sleeve. It's there if we look for it and we see it. But it's important. And I challenge my own heart to just look and say, I don't want to be conformed by the selfishness of the culture, which my very selfish flesh is very happy <laughs> to uh, be conformed by. But I want to look and, and have an eye for this kind of thing and to make sure that if Jesus spoke about it so much and it's found from one end of the book to the other, that somehow doing good to others unsolicited to meet needs in other people is also a part of my Christian life and my Christian experience. And to realize how influential and how powerful it is. Again, we think we got to get somebody elected, and I'm not putting God's people in politics down, or we've got to become billionaires to make a difference, and all these things that we just convince ourselves of that keep us from taking these steps that can make a difference. And Dorcas comes on the scene and says, nope, all you need to do is be able to, and for her, it was so. The power of good works and the lives of other people and the power to be an influence, not only for good, but also for God. Now, I think it is interesting. We come to this passage on Mother's Day and uh, hadn't intended for us to get here, but we just did. And I think it's interesting because the life of Dorcas, that is the call of motherhood, isn't it? <laughs> it is a lifestyle. It is a always doing of unlimited good deeds to needy people. That is being a mother. I remember being at a pastor's conference many years ago up in Lake Tahoe. The pastor got up. He since became a friend, but he got up with kind of a theatrical flair, and he said, the trouble with life is that it's just, just so daily. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't forgotten it, have I? <laughs> Meaning that because life is so often lived, it's so much of it is lived in the realm of quiet and it's routine and it's often so uneventful. It's just the same thing day in and day out that we can miss the long-term picture of its significance and its influence. And what is true of ministry and true of every Christian is also true of motherhood. I like what William Ross Wallace wrote in his Ode to Motherhood and the Influence and Significance of Motherhood. It was a poem that he wrote uh, where the chorus is, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. And one stanza reads, woman, how divine your mission here upon our natal sod. Keep, oh, keep the young heart open always to the breath of God. All true trophies of the ages are from mother love impearled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Abraham Lincoln said, No man is poor who had a godly mother. And I say amen to that. And I and we salute you today. But let me say now, in my true closing, Final closing here. If you sit here today as a mother or as anyone, but I'll talk to mothers, and you've been the greatest mother that a person could ever have, 
is still not enough to get you into heaven. You still need to be forgiven of your sins. And you need to be saved by the God who loves you, the God who gave you your children and gave you life. And salvation occurs when a person comes to a point in their life and they recognize and they say to God, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son to die on the cross as the full and satisfying payment for my sins. And I believe that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And I believe that he is the Savior and that is the salvation that pleases you. And so I put my trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit, God Almighty, and the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life and you will be born again. And it's all there for the asking and the receiving today. Even motherhood cannot fill the void that is in your life that only God can fill. And he longs to fill that void in your life today. And what is true of mothers is true of every, sing every other person in this room that does not yet know Christ. And there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to take that step into that relationship with God this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Fathers, we go through the book of Acts, so much of it is lights, camera, action, and we love all of it. It's just these dynamic demonstrations of your power and, and the amazing kind of things that, that occur. And we can come to believe even in the body of Christ that it's, it's a revival or nothing or that it's got to be some kind of uh, someone being raised from the dead to impact a city or some miracle of some kind. And yet here, Lord, is the power of a needle in one woman's life in one city that impacted the entire city. We pray as we stand before you right now as your children. And we ask that you fill us with your Holy Spirit right now and you would give us the clarity of your understanding of how important good works are to you and to your work through our lives and bringing this world to you, Lord. Freshly help us to see that. And then, Lord, we pray that you would give us a supernatural sensitivity to recognize the need around us and the opportunities for us to do good that we would otherwise walk past day after day after day after day. Would you help us, Lord, and take us by the hand this morning and lead us into this kind of life and that our Christian life would be marked not only by knowing your word and growing in your word and studying your word and obeying your word, but also by good works being done in your name. And Lord, we pray that you would carve out time, you would build bar margins in our life so that we will give room to this kind of thing as you do lead us and as you do prompt us. We pray... We beg you, please, that you do not allow the lesson of this passage to be lost in our hearts and in our Christian life. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.